You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm joined by Jack Franklin, a programmer at Google. We talk about Jack's experiences working on the Chrome DevTools team and some of the unusual technical choices they've made, at least by modern standards, in the course of developing a tool that's used by a lot of programmers. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, building Chrome DevTools. All right, Jack, thanks for joining me. No problem. Thanks for having me on. So you work now uh, for the past couple of years on um, the, the Chrome DevTools, right? Yes. Yeah. Two and a half years I've been on the DevTools team. Wow. So how did you end up working on Chrome DevTools of all things? Yeah, kind of a, a long winding road through a few different startups and, and other companies. And then I actually was doing a conference talk at a conference. I want to say in it may have been Frontiers in Amsterdam three or so years ago. And someone, another speaker worked on DevTools at Google. And I was kind of talking about a lot of the work I've been doing on front-end components and building component-based applications. Afterwards, after the conference, we we got talking and he said, oh, you should come for lunch. There's something I want to chat about. And it turned out that a lot of what I was doing and had been speaking about was sort of on the mind of the, the DevTools team. Uh, and they had a space on the team in the London office. And it went from there. I applied, thankfully made it through the, the interview process and didn't look back really. So yeah, that that's that's me. Been working on it ever since. Wow. So so you're working on something that I, I wonder, do you have any estimates of like how many programmers use Chrome DevTools? Yeah, we have some numbers. I think lots is about as far as I can say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was that was the number I had in mind too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So so like this is a, a widely used piece of software to say the least. And I, I think so your specialty, if I if I understand this correctly, is uh, something to do with performance, like web like performance of websites and having using the dev tools to help people improve the performance of their websites or web apps. Yeah. So when I first joined, I was more broadly on a team within DevTools called architecture and testing. And and our job was sort of trying to modernize a bit some of the the tech stack we were working on. You've got to bear in mind that DevTools is what, 15 plus years old when it first started floating around. Uh, And so we were kind of looking at, at things like components and moving to TypeScript and ES modules and that kind of stuff. Uh, but yes, then I moved into working on the performance tooling. So that's the primarily most people would know that as the performance panel. So you, you open up DevTools, you hit record, you do a bunch of stuff on your website, and then we give you all this information, what happened, what may have caused slowdown with a focus on core web vitals, which is kind of what we push as these metrics that sort of you need to check for your website's performance. Uh, and so these days I'm, I'm focusing on building building out the performance tooling that we offer. Okay, so what's the relationship between that and like Lighthouse and like Flame Graphs? Like, I, I know that all of those are sort of related, but also probably worked on by different teams. Yeah, so Lighthouse is a, is a different team. I think there's a lot of similarities. I think the goal with Lighthouse was, I think what Lighthouse has been really successful at, at doing was giving you this score for your website out of 100. And so that provides a really tangible number that over time a team or a person can can work on to get their score up and and hopefully towards that 100 that everyone aims for. And so I think if you want a sort of overview, like almost a report, like a school term report on on how your website's doing, Lighthouse is a really good place to go for that. The performance panel really is a layer kind of, if you peel back Lighthouse, we're kind of showing you what happened along the entire timeline of the recording, users clicking on whatever buttons, inputs and typing, through to JavaScript that was executing and those cool stacks where you can see what functions took a certain amount of time to run, highlighting the network and how that plays a role as well. So really Lighthouse to me feels more like the the report, the summary, and then you can dive in if you need to uh, and look into more detail in in the performance panel. Got it. (laughs) So this is many years ago now. I want to say it was James Long who was working at Mozilla on on Firefox DevTools. And I think if I remember right, he mentioned using a library of mine, like this really old JavaScript immutable library, Seamless Immutable, I made like over a weekend for work, like like 2013 or 2014 or something. And I was like, oh, wow, that's cool. Like code that I wrote made it into the DevTools. But then my next thought was like, oh, DevTools actually use like JavaScript. Like they're, they're actually written in JavaScript. Like, the, well, I'm guessing that 
there's like low level C++ hooks for like measuring the performance. And then there's a big UI on top of that. And the UI part is written in JavaScript. Until I, I found out about that, it had never occurred to me that like, oh, I, was just, I just kind of assumed the whole thing was C++. But I guess it kind of makes sense that you would, you know, if you've already got this whole rendering engine that you would probably want to reuse that. And I guess there's even a bit of a uh, dog fooding there where like, uh, so which, which leads me to a thing I'm curious about, which is, do you ever use chrome dev tools to make the chrome dev tools go faster <laughs> not quite i don't use the performance tools on dev tools but if i'm working on dev tools i use dev tools on dev tools all the time so yeah that can get very confusing because you've you've got two dev tools windows open at all times and one of them is dev tools with the feature you're trying to build or fix or whatever and the other one is the dev tools inspecting the dev tools that you're working on uh, and <laughs> get, right. the, the trick most of us use is to set one dev tools to light mode and one to dark mode and then you can visually distinguish uh which is which i i wish i could say i do that successfully all the time and of course it can be tricky because if you if you break dev tools and you're trying to figure out how if you've broken the thing that you need to use to figure out why the thing is broken then when you inspect DevTools with DevTools, that DevTools is broken as well. As well. It can get a little bit trippy uh, at times. But yeah, it is entirely a front-end based application. It's all HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. For us, TypeScript, uh, obviously JavaScript-based. We use it all the time on itself. I'm curious about that because, so I remember back in, I want to say this is like 2011. This is before TypeScript came out, before Flow came out. I was working on a project and we wanted to get some static typing going and we actually used Google's Clojure compiler, which has, or at least had at the time, I'm guessing it probably still does, static type checking via optional annotations that you'd put in comments. And it was like Clojure compiler is partly for performance optimization and bundling type stuff, but also for it would do a, a type checking pass. And I always kind of wondered, I mean, like clearly... In the industry at large, TypeScript is sort of like becoming the de facto standard, if it's not already the de facto standard. And so I always wondered, like, is that something that Google as a whole is moving towards? Or is that just like every team kind of decides for themselves? Or how does that work? So when I joined DevTools, it did use Clojure exclusively, but we then took on the job of migrating it all to TypeScript, which was, it took, I think, over a year to, to get there. And, and for a while, we were actually... We were still writing JavaScript files, but we had both the Clojure compiler and the TypeScript compiler checking those files. Because you can also, you can harness the TypeScript compiler via JS doc comments as well, which very frustratingly, nearly always the same as Clojure comments, <laughs> but like not quite. And so when, as a sort of migration step, we wanted both compilers to be happy. And nine times out of 10, that was okay. But sometimes you just couldn't express something that satisfied both. And then there were a few horrible workarounds we we had to perform. Oh, like what? Now I'm curious. <laughs> uh, just hacks and, and you know, deferring to TypeScript anys or just turning off the compiler for one block or not the other or disabling checks for a whole file or really diving into the syntax to try and find a workaround or, yeah, slightly messy stuff. In fact, if you were to search through the DevTools code base, you'll still find lines that are like, what is the directive in TypeScript? Is it TS expect? ignore error, something like that, which basically tells TypeScript that if there's an error on the next line, ignore it. And there's still a few of those floating around that say disable during the closure TypeScript migration. We've got rid of most of them, but not not quite all of them. So Google as a whole, I, I you know, my sense, obviously I've only been there for, for two and a half years and only on DevTools, but my sense is that TypeScript is now the, the way forwards really. And for new projects, it's heavily encouraged and Within the sort of Google ecosystem, TypeScript is very well supported. Got it. Yeah, I, I, that makes sense. I mean, because the fact that the industry has sort of like adopted it as the standard means that the ecosystem around it's just going to be a lot bigger. I mean, I granted, again, it was 2011, but I remember at the time there was really no ecosystem, at least in, in the public world around Clojure Compiler. I'm also curious about you know, you mentioned like the way that you got into this was giving talks and, and talking about like, you know, component driven development, or I forget what the term you used was, but, you know, using like components, I'm assuming you don't mean web components. I'm assuming you mean something more like React components. Yeah, well, at, at the time I was working at a company where we did use React. However, broadly, what I was talking about at the time, I was trying not to make React specific. So I the talk used React examples because that's what I knew. But it really, the goal was if you were using Angular, Vue, Ember, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you, you could still kind of, yeah, the, the concepts and the conventions. However, as you say that, at, at 
uh, DevTools, we do use web components as the components. Uh, so we are, we don't have a React or an Angular, anything like that. We have native web components with a little library called lit HTML, which takes care of the re-rendering of HTML efficiently into the DOM for us. But that's like a tiny three, four kilobyte library, perhaps. And that's it. So I'm curious, like, I mean, I, I remember when like the web component spec came out, it seemed like it was mostly coming out of Google, like a lot of the talks and stuff that I was hearing um, about like pushing for like using web components for development, as opposed to like the way we use it in Elm is like, you know, for for interop. <laughs> That's about it. But using it as like a first class like development thing, seemed like it was mostly coming out of Google. In fact, I remember talking with people who are like on the core teams of like Ember and React and Vue and stuff. And, and it seemed like nobody was really that interested in like getting web components incorporated into React or into Ember, certainly not in Elm. But it seemed like Google still had this sort of, I don't know if vision is the right word, but this maybe goal of getting people to use web components for normal development. And I remember hearing about YouTube, like sort of embracing that. And it, so is that, I guess I'm curious, is that also like a, a Google wide thing? Or is it like, is there a policy of like, no react? Or is it like that was an option to you, but you the team just decided that, that lit HTML was the way to go? So I think it depends which part of Google you're looking at. There's a lot of Angular, which is probably unsurprising given that, that Google funds and, and obviously employs people to, to build and construct it. So Angular is, is pushed. YouTube is, to the best of my knowledge, still primarily web components and, and Polymer based, which was this Google built library around web components, which to be honest, that's about as much as I could tell you about it. I, I don't know much more. For us on, on DevTools, we have slightly different constraints, I think, to a lot of, of Google because we quite seriously thought about the fact that it's been around for so long and hopefully it will be around for another 10, 15, et cetera, years. And so we thought quite seriously about what would happen if we picked, let's say, React for argument's sake, but really you can substitute React here for any anything else. What happens if in 15 years it's not maintained or it's gone away or Facebook have, have stopped supporting it or whatever, or we pick Angular and Google decides to move away from it. And so we decided then that going off something that the browser supported that was built in would be less of a risk in, in that regard. And actually, to be honest, since then, I mean, I'm biased because I made the decision, but I haven't really missed something like React or or a framework of that level. I actually, shameless plug, wrote a blog post about this a, a couple of months ago, but the web components and what's built into the browser has come, I think, farther than people think. I think you can do more in them than, than some people imagine. And sure, it doesn't look quite as nice, perhaps, as React, depending on how you define nice, but you can achieve a lot more. And what we also have the advantage of, which uh, where is fortunate relative to a lot of other web developers, is that we have one browser that we have to care about, right? It's the Chrome DevTools. It runs in Chrome. And so any JavaScript feature that is implemented in Chrome that may not be in other browsers yet is still well within our reach, and we can lean on those. Whereas other people, if you're developing a, a website, you may not be able to. So for us, I think leaning on what the browser gives us is, is a good choice for dev tools and is sort of responsible as stewards of quite a big, well-used, as you said, product that hopefully will be around for a while. Yeah, that, that reasoning makes sense to me. So I remember back when like React came out, I, I think the first version of React I used was like, I was O dot something, and it was earlier than O dot eight, because I remember upgrading to O dot eight. But I really liked it. And the way that I always used it was I didn't use JSX with it. I actually used like, well, we were using CoffeeScript at the time, but I actually wrote a blog post about this. It's buried somewhere on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> CoffeeScript. It's a throwback. Yeah, you, using, so this is all, I, I assume that, I, I think I remember reading later that CoffeeScript got its own JSX like syntax. Uh, but at the time there was no JSX for CoffeeScript. But anyway, I, I made this little DSL that was just like function calls. And I was quite happy with that and really liked using React in that way. But I remember that the way that I used it was like very basic and not trying to do any state management or anything like that. Just, I don't know. It, it was like, I think Flux was the <laughs> was the thing back then, Flux stores. I don't know. That, that, that always felt like enough for me. And I know that like Redux became a big thing. And then there was this big push to move away from Redux and towards, uh, I guess, like some combination of context and hooks maybe. And it always seemed to me, and maybe this is just because after I had that positive experience with React, I kind of moved into Elm and then just sort of like watched the React news. But my impression was like every time I saw a new announcement about React, it always seemed like it was 
moving away from the simple roots that I liked about it back when I was using it and and towards something that was a lot more complicated and magical of an API. And I didn't see like the benefits that they were talking about didn't seem that compelling to me as remembering how I like what I liked about it in the first place. So when you're talking about using lit HTML, which I don't know anything about disclaimer, <laughs> but like the idea of something that maybe feels like it's less featureful than modern react actually sounds like somewhat of a selling point to me. I don't know if I would like lit HTML if I tried it, but the idea of like, oh, you wouldn't get this, that or the other thing in react. I don't know if that's such a bad thing. Although I, I do know that like a lot of tools over the years have come out that are react specific, like storybook. And well, I guess storybook's not react specific, but I don't know, maybe storybook has a lit HTML equivalent. But yeah, there's there's like there's that ecosystem of tooling, but then there's also just like, what's the API like? And my my personal feeling is like, I don't think I would like to use modern React as much as I would like to just go back to old school style of React, but maybe with modern bug fixes or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that resonates with with me a, a lot. And that's one of the things I like about the way we're using web components is there's there's not much magic going on. You have to do more things. So slightly controlled example, but React, right? You create some state, and when you change that state, React will re-render your component for you. It's fairly sort of bog standard. There's none of that built into web components, or even with us with lit HTML, that doesn't happen for free. We we have to change a thing and then call, in our case, we have a method called render that we define and we call that. And so you have to do a little bit more manual orchestration to remember to call the the render method at the right times. But what I've found is I, I, that's not really an issue. That's not a big deal to me. But what it gets you is you know exactly why and when your component has re-rendered, which doesn't sound that useful, but it, it does when there's a bug and you can't figure out why something is updating at the wrong time or there's an update out of sync or there's some weird oddity going on. When you, when you are controlling everything that happens, you can really debug through that step by step in a way that you, you simply can't if you've led some form of abstraction, which is controlling that for you. And so we talked a lot about the inversion of control when we were considering where, where to go. And this idea as well on the web of um, off ramps, like, okay, let's say this thing gets deprecated or unmaintained, and we want to move away. How hard is it to do? And I think if you go all in on a framework, whatever it may be, that's quite hard. The goal with us picking web components and and lit HTML was that it's it's quite easy and similarly with lit HTML it's 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 just the it has a function called HTML which you kind of pass a tag template string to and in there you put HTML and you you interpolate values in and lit does the rest for you so it's really a very straightforward templating it's not even language because you write HTML and it just <laughs> it, it's a templating HTML thing that's a good description <laughs> but but you could replace that right with any number of the html re-rendering dsl type libraries that are on npm that are, are popular or you could even replace it with one that uses jsx like syntax so you have a lot of options there and so for me the compelling reason to use web components or one of them is that you keep control for some people that takes some getting used to because we've gotten used to a world where you don't actually call these methods yourself you let the framework do all that for you and i think there's a quite a lot to be said for you doing that yourself that's interesting i don't know if this is a fair comparison but i definitely remember like back in the day using jquery and sort of feeling like i was doing everything myself in the sense of like i was like directly reaching out and mutating parts of the dom but it sounds like this is like somewhat of a like the experience that you have at work is some has some overlap with those days, but also some overlap with the React days in terms of like how things are organized. I think so. So you're you're not mutating the DOM, but you are telling Lit when to go and mutate the DOM. I guess is the kind of comparison. And I guess in React you have a similar thing, but it's like the API is different in like should component update, where you're saying like, okay, well under these like. By default, normally when I change the state, I want you to render. But in these cases, I actually want you to not do that. And it sounds like what you're saying is that the way you do it is sort of the opposite of that. Whereas when you change the state, by default, nothing happens. And then you have to opt into updating it. So it's sort of like, which is the default, I guess, is, is the only... But you still have a conditional either way saying when to do it and when not to do it. Yeah, pretty much. I, I think, again, completely biased, I would argue that logic is easier to write when you're writing, okay, now you should render rather than trying to list out all the places where you shouldn't, I think. But yeah, it's really, 
in React or whatever, you, you have to, as you say, define these methods and return true or false, and, and that tells React what to do. The web component world that, that we use, you just have to call the method yourself when you want it to render. And so pros and cons, but for me, I, I like having that control and being able to, to call that myself. And I think it, it, there have been times where it's been useful to be able to track down exactly why something was rendering and and get kind of this call stack out that is just your code primarily and, and not reaching into any internal set state type mechanisms. I'm not surprised that the Chrome dev team did not decide to use Elm for this project, but <laughs> I do know that you've personally used Elm in the past. So I'm kind of curious, like how, like what if we throw Elm into the mix just in terms of user experience, not saying like, you know, for a variety of reasons, the Chrome dev team would of course not use Elm for this, but I'm curious what just on a personal level, like just comparing your experiences with Elm to your experiences with like React and lit HTML, kind of like, you know, w- what do you like and dislike about each of them? I think I've got to a place where Web Components and TypeScript doesn't feel as far away from Elm as it once did, which I, I really like. I think TypeScript is is good. It's pretty, you know, it's popular. It's it's well used for a reason. I remember when I first started learning Elm, what I absolutely loved was this idea that you update a type somewhere and then you run the Elm compiler and you just get told, okay, line 54 in this file is now wrong. And here's why. Then you fix that and you run it again. Line 64 in another file is wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And then you you do all that. And then when you build it, you're pretty confident it's going to work. Like, sure, you may have made a logical error, but it is, it's going to work and you're not going to get any undefined is not a function type stuff. And I find these days with TypeScript, I get very close to a similar experience when changing a type. So for example, I, I currently work on the performance tooling and we have a file full of types that define different what are called trace events. So these are when you when we've recorded a website and it's loading performance, we have loads of events that say this happened at this time and, and so on. The other day I found a, an error in our types for one of those trace events. And I changed the type uh, and I had like five compiler uh, errors that TypeScript found where we were just referring now to a, a now incorrect value. I went through and updated those, ran all the tests and it just passed first time. I didn't even have to run the product. I didn't have to load up Chromium and DevTools to check that it was working because I just knew. And so I think for me, like that, the workflow that I had in Elm was always what I wanted to replicate outside of, of Elm. So that to me has been the big win. And I think on a certainly on a product like DevTools, we would struggle being a layer away from the actual HTML and the actual DOM. I know we use, as I've said, we use lit HTML, but even so in these components, you can read their shadow DOM and you can query for what they've got inside them. And you can do, if you really want to, you can do, do jQuery-esque mutations to them. Not that we, we do on the regular, but <laughs> very rarely it is useful to be able to do that in certain situations. And so I think using something like Elm would, would just remove us from that too much. And we'd have to, we'd have a lot of interrupt between Elm and JavaScript that would get. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, like I said, I, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't have any illusions that the Chrome dev team is going to actually use Elm itself. I'm also curious about something else you mentioned, which is, uh, so you're bringing up Chromium. So like when, when you work locally, I guess that's, you actually work directly on Chromium rather than Chrome. Like that's the code base that you'd be building on. Primarily, yes, there is a internal DevTools repository that has stuff that isn't in the public domain for for reasons. Um, but most of the time, yeah, so anyone can go and find the DevTools front-end repository. It's open source. You can clone it. You can send us, well, it's not called a pull request in Google language. It's called a CL. Right, change list, right? Change yeah. list, yeah, um, but same, same thing. And anyone can do that. So yeah, for most of the time, we are Chromium-based. Uh, and and changes contribute to Chromium. So then another browser that is building off Chromium, the DevTools there would have the changes that we've made as well. Does that happen? Like, do people make open source contributions to Chrome DevTools or Chromium DevTools? <laughs> very rarely. It does. We have had some, and people do like to do it very occasionally, but not often, no, for, for very understandable reasons. It, it's a fairly... Uh, full-on project a couple of people have done quite cool youtube videos where they make a change to it and and upload it and it is entirely possible it's not that hard and as you as you say it's a front-end code base actually sure although it's quite a big front-end code base and there are some differences and conventions that look a bit weird it is html css and, and typescript at the end of the day so it is it is doable 
I often think if we were on, let's say we were on GitHub and it was a fully GitHub-based project, I think maybe we'd get a few more because just that workflow is more common. You have to download a couple of Chromium-specific tools to to let you do the full process, but it, it does happen occasionally. Gotcha. Something else I'm curious about is, so thinking about like how TypeScript became this sort of standard, and Google is obviously like very invested already in like Closure Compiler as a way of doing type checking. I'm kind of curious what, what your thoughts are on, because I, I have my own theories, but I always like to hear what other people think about why TypeScript won. And when I think back about the environment in which TypeScript came out, it's like, okay, so there was Google Closure Compiler and Google certainly had like an excellent reputation at like being a very like web positive company. And then Facebook comes out with Flow. And that was like 2014, I think. And that was in the era where like Facebook was known for coming out with React, which a lot of people really liked. And then Microsoft had come out with TypeScript before Flow with a lot less hype and fanfare. And Microsoft at the time, this was before like Visual Studio had taken over. This is when Adam was really big and before Microsoft had bought GitHub. At the time, in the web development world, far and away, what Microsoft was most known for was Internet Explorer. So they were like not, you know, this was not a good brand to have associated with your like web development tool. And yet that's the one that ended up winning. And I have some theories as to why this was, but I'm kind of curious what your, I don't know if you have any ideas about how that to me seemingly very improbable winner ended up emerging from among Google's offering and Facebook's offering and Microsoft's offering. Interesting. I'd never really thought about this. I I remember that all I think about when you're talking about like the closure compiler is see pre-Google, when TypeScript and Flow were beginning to float around, I had never even occurred for a second to me that I could use the Clojure compiler to for some form of type safety. So I think outside of Google, that was I don't think I ever came across anyone who would enthusiastically talk about it. <laughs> and so that wasn't even on my radar ever, I don't think. It certainly wasn't marketed as like, oh, this is a great way to check your types. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think I vaguely remember that some people use the closure compiler to optimize, like it was very good f- at one point at optimizing and minimizing code better than any others. I th- that vaguely rings a bell. Yeah, I think that was true. And I remember um, closure script, like closure with a J, because we're talking about closure compiler with an yeah. S and then closure yeah. script, no, no <laughs> relation, but but they the closure script team did design closure script to work really well with the Google closure compiler because it did such a good job. Yeah, I remember that. And then... I don't know, to be honest, I, I remember using Flow a little bit and using TypeScript. And then it, it felt, as far as my memory goes, just one day, suddenly everyone was using TypeScript. I think <laughs> having like, used it since and and had a couple of projects where we've introduced it into a code base, both at the DevTools level and just smaller side projects. And I can't compare this to Flow because I haven't really done this with, with Flow, but I've always felt TypeScript is quite good at bending to fit into your project if you want to adopt it incrementally. Whether that means that you disable, like, say you turn off its strict set of type checks, or you use, yeah, the TS ignore on the next line, even TS no check on an entire file, just like get it into the TypeScript compiler system. To me, that always felt good and let you adopt incrementally, like, especially once the TypeScript compiler supported JavaScript files, you could have 100,000 JavaScript files and one TypeScript file and the TypeScript compiler could take care of it all. I think that was very powerful. And then I think I remember the when I was trying TypeScript, there was, is it called Definitely Typed? The repository of yeah. sort of declaration files for TypeScript. Right. That for, sorry, for NPM packages that don't have TypeScript support built in. And I think I remember at one point trying to use Flow and there not being the equivalent available in Flow. And there was in, in Definitely Typed. And that just meant I could actually have nice types for this third party thing I was using. And so I think a combination of the easy adoption and maybe a greater ecosystem of types based on my anecdotal experience helped me kind of start to pick it up and ramp up with it. Yeah. So I think those are in my like theory of why this happened. And I mean, you know, these will never be proven. So it's it's just going to wander around being theories. But I think those are two out of the three big reasons. So one being that TypeScript, I think more than Flow, and I don't really know about compared to Google Closure Compiler because I just had the one experience with it at one job, but it seems like TypeScript optimized more for being easy to incrementally introduce to a JavaScript code base than to what's the like what's the goal state that you get to afterwards. So 
TypeScript is like famously intentionally an unsound type system. But I think Flow was designed to be sound if you like turned off or like it checked all the I don't know options off or something like that. There was some way to get it to actually be a sound type system. And I think that may have been a mistake in the sense that I, like the design constraints that, that places on you in terms of how sort of flexible you can be for like optimizing a, a JavaScript code base maybe is a problem. And it seems like now because TypeScript's been so successful at getting so many JavaScript projects to convert to TypeScript that in the long run, they're going to end up getting to a better outcome in terms of like, you know, how close to sound are you just because people use it and like and adopt it so much. Like optimizing for adoption seems like a pretty smart move when you have probably the most like entrenched language in like any widely used domain, which is like JavaScript, you know, like the idea that people would be doing front-end web development and not primarily using JavaScript was like 10 years ago, just completely unthinkable. That was just totally, totally ludicrous of an idea. And now it's like, oh, actually, most people are using TypeScript now professionally. I don't know if that's true yet, but it's certainly like, seems inevitable at this point. Yeah, I would agree. So so I think that's part of it. That's that's one part is the like optimizing for incremental adoption. Second part, I think definitely typed. I think you hit the nail on the head with that. Like the fact that you had a way to get access to other people's type definitions and not have to just be like, well, I don't know. It's just me over here doing my typed thing. And then anytime I want to use a popular library, I just have to write all the typing definitions from scratch, which was what we had to do with Clojure Compiler back in the day. Like that's that wasn't a recipe for long-term success. But yeah, I think, so I think definitely typed is the second part. But the third part, I think, is VS Code and the fact that it just shipped with like, I'm not going to say flawless, but like s- seamless, right? Types, you had, there was no work to get it working with types. It just was already there. And because VS Code was a popular, I mean, I definitely remember being an Atom user and VS Code came out and I was like, I don't understand what the pitch is. Like, why would I switch? It's like, this is another Electron-based, like, editor. And, like, people are like, oh, maybe it's a little bit faster. I was like, okay, do I want to, like, set up all my extensions again and, like, all my key bindings and, like, you know, all that, like, just just for an editor that's, like, looks and feels almost identical to Atom. But a lot of people, for one reason or another, did make that switch or hadn't switched from like a text mate or sublime text or something to Adam and decided to give it a try for VS code. And so there were enough people trying out VS code that the pitch of TypeScript now becomes, Hey, if you're already using VS code, you can just try this right now. Just like run this one line of code to convert your JS to TS and just start seeing the red squiggle appear under things. And the red squiggle, I think is like the reason that a lot of people wanted TypeScript. It's not because I, I I was going to a lot of conferences at the time giving talks about Elm and I would talk to people in the audience and I would try to ask this very open-ended question, which was, what do you think of TypeScript? This is like 2017-ish. And I was not trying to lead in any direction. I just wanted to get their honest opinion. And some people would say, oh, I'm never going to use that, which they probably are now. <laughs> but, uh, but they'd say like, oh, I have no interest in that. Like, I don't I don't want to no, get out of here through TypeScript. And then some people would say, oh, I'm, I'm using it and I'm really happy. And then other people would say like, I'm interested in using it, but I haven't tried it yet. And the people who used it, I would say, what do you like about it? And some people would say like, oh, correctness. And like, oh, you know, your code base gets big and you want the like, you know, the types, you know, sense of safety and, and, you know, refactoring and all that. But the most common answer I would get is I like the red squiggle. I, I like, I like having my editor tell me immediately when there's a problem, instead of having to like leave my editor, run the app, get to the particular point, And then it crashes. Like it's much, it's just a way faster feedback loop to just find out about that instantly. Like while you're in the middle of editing, but, and you could theoretically get that with Google Closure Compiler or with Flow, but like you would have to have an extension exist for your editor and who knows what the like user experience is going to be of that because this is also before like language servers were widely used. But yeah, I mean, it, it just worked. You just got the red squiggle consistently and you didn't have to do any work to set it up. Yeah, I, I can remember it was the first time. So I was a Vim user for a, a long time. Then I used Atom with a Vim mode. And I remember it, VS Code and TypeScript was at least in my head, because I'd been primarily front-end developer and I hadn't worked with any static languages before other than like Java at university where we used IntelliJ or Eclipse or one of one of those things. Yes. Yeah, and <laughs> the, the VS Code was, you know, just when it when it popped up an autocomplete and it wasn't just basic text like character recognition and it was actually understanding that where I was syntactically in the class or whatever and it knew based on that 
you know, you do foo dot and it knows that the only things you want to type there are properties or methods on foo. That was like the first time I'd ever seen that intelligent level of, of hinting in my code editor. And this was like, wow, like I have to have this. And <laughs> so, yeah. And, and, you know, and it's funny, I since now gone, gone back to Vim, but purely because I, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think then Microsoft also kind of pushed the language server yeah, set up. That was a VS that, Code that was, thing. That was yeah. kind of a thing from VS Code, and so now I have the same experience in Vim, but it's all powered by language servers. So I think right, you kind of got this TypeScript VS Code circle that just keeps going round and round, and you use you use them both, and you just get this amazing experience. And and yeah, I think it kind of snowballed from there, really. And I remember the first time, similarly to the autocomplete, I used the rename symbol yeah, functionality in VS yeah. Code again. Other than IntelliJ at university, the first time I'd ever used that on a front-end project, and it had changed it in every place intelligently across 20 files. I didn't have to do a find and replace or any manual changes. And it just kind of worked. And that was that was like that felt very powerful at the time. I can remember like showing colleagues this, and they're like, oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, it was really like went around the whole office, like, you have to use VS Code. Yeah. So I remember I had used like so the, my first experiences with like Eclipse and IntelliJ IDEA um, and NetBeans also uh, were, were in university. But then afterwards, I did, I uh, for several years, I was a professional Java developer. And so I had used some of these things. I also did a little bit of Scala also with IntelliJ. But the thing is that I remember being very frustrated using those because yes, like refactor rename was always amazing. I always used to say that was the big thing that I missed when I went, switched from those editors to, uh, I think it was first... TextMate and then Sublime Text and then Vim and then Atom and then VS Code. But I, I missed having that and I missed having the like autocomplete and those things. But the reason that I chose not to use those those systems was that they were so laggy. I just remember always like, you know, there would be this viscerally palpable delay between when I press the key and when something would appear on the screen, especially if there was like an autocomplete. When I press dot, that was the longest amount of time I'd be waiting before the screen did anything. And it just felt so liberating to go to like a plain text editor where every time, like the computer was just instantly responsive to whatever I was doing. I think part of the reason for this is that I saw a talk by, I'm going to mispronounce his name because I'm an American, but uh, Anders Halesberg, the guy who made like, I, he didn't make it, but like was one of the main people behind uh, C Sharp as well as like the design of TypeScript. He wasn't the lead implementer, but he was talking, giving a talk about how they designed like the uh, the compiler to work well inside editing environments. And that was one of the things that he talked about was autocomplete performance. And he was like, you know, we have learned that if autocomplete doesn't show up very, very quickly within like a few, I think he said like, like one or 200 milliseconds or something of like when people press the dot, they get very upset. And I was like, yeah, I was very upset. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Funny you should mention that. So that was something that they, they had in mind when they were designing, presumably not just TypeScript, but also VS Code is like, how do we how do we achieve an experience that feels not laggy? And that's a legit innovation because I remember like what it was like using those things before. I'm assuming that I haven't used them in years, but I'm assuming that like Eclipse and IntelliJ and NetBeans, if that's still a thing, are, are like aware of this and hopefully have been like working to improve that performance. But it's just interesting, like what our relative priorities are. It's like, oh, if you can give me that, that feature set, but I don't have to have a laggy text editing experience, then great, I'm all for it. But if I have to pick between the two, I have a revealed preference for just like, yeah, I mean, I'll just find and replace with grip. All right, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what I'm going to do because I got to have that instant feedback. It's just it's just too frustrating to try to work any other way. Yeah, I think the moment you you don't feel like your editor is responding as you're, as you're sort of typing or imparting your your thoughts into the editor is just, that's it, like it's gone for me at that point i can't use it and I'm, I'm the same even now which i have a tangential funny story about so i i, I picked up vim again maybe uh, a year or so ago and i set up all the language servers and it was all working fine and one day it wasn't working and i was debugging and then i got it working some plugin boring and then for the next few months autocomplete was weirdly slow for me and it had never been and i, I spent ages i like reverted the version of plugins i was using i even like checked out an old commit of uh, neovim uh, to see if it was that i built it from scratch could not figure it out and i was just this is ridiculous like no one else i couldn't find any mention of this issue on the internet 
Anyway, it turned out when I was debugging this previous issue into my dot files, I'd basically put like vim.lsp.debug equals true. And it turned out that debug, when you triggered autocomplete, logged multiple, multiple messages to this log file. So you could see everything that was going back and forth. But of course, that means every autocomplete, it's writing quite a lot of data to disk, relatively. <laughs> And then yeah. over time, what happened is these log files, I think they were gigabytes in size on my machine. <laughs> so every autocomplete triggered having to append to that file. And uh, yeah, I commented that out and suddenly it was all snappy again. But for four months, I was bashing my head against the desk trying to figure out what on earth this was. I have had a similar experience with Vim plugins specifically. And that was, I, I finally like rage quit and just switched to to VS Code. Um I don't know, just like a year ago or something. Because yeah, I, I and it wasn't that I edited something and like added a, a config setting. It was I did a routine update where I was just like, hey, update my plugins. And just suddenly like multiple things stopped working, like because they were just the new versions didn't play well with each other of whatever. And I spent I forget how long it was debugging it, but after a while I was just like, I'm done. I'm not I I don't want this is not what I want for my life. Let me just go try and use <laughs> the thing that like everybody else is using and maybe the Vim mode. And the Vim mode to its credit has gotten a lot better. It's it's still not as reliable as as plain Vim, and there's definitely some frustrating bugs. But it's like at least whenever I update my plugins, they work together. <laughs> yeah, that that's fair. I think I had a similar, I was VS Code and, and the Vim plugin for a long time. Then I, I ended up moving and trying NeoVim, which is this fork of Vim with sort of slightly rewritten with a slightly different kind of goal and, and long-term feature set. And what really appealed to me was they published this plugin, which was LSP support. Because I, I kept going back to Vim. And it, again, this we're talking about like funny things that makes an editor not usable to someone. I, I remember I had VS Code on half my screen. I had Vim on the other half. And I was just looking at the colors and the syntax highlighting and Vim's was just so dull and loads of things that should in my head be different colors because they represent different types of things just were the same color because at the time Vim was just doing this sort of basic regex based highlighting. Whereas I think VS Code uses, is it tree sitter? Probably, yeah. To sort of pull out syntactical information and, and highlight on that. So it's much more reliable and better. But then suddenly one day I saw NeoVim had published a language server protocol thing and a tree sitter based thing. And that was it. I ditched, I ditched VS Code, moved into that, and I've been a very happy user ever since. They also now, we're going off on a massive tangent here, but they now, they support Lua for configuring now NeoVim rather than does. Vim scripts. Yeah, NeoVim, sorry, not regular right, Vim. Yeah. And so I'd never used Lua before, but it's, it's a pretty straightforward language to pick up. It's pretty small. And so I can now kind of, I've been able to write a couple of custom plugins and functions that I can uh, invoke in my workflow, which I would never have been able to do with, with VimScript, uh, because that's just a whole thing that I will resist going into. So I, I think the NeoVim and, and the experience there is is much closer to a VS Code. But I take your point that it has taken me some hours to configure everything exactly how I want it. And I still lose the occasional half an hour or even afternoon to trying out a few new NeoVim Neo settings. Yeah, I mean, I I already like, I mean, there, part of it was like the amount of time it took me to get a, you know, a working setup that I was happy with. But I mean, the, the, the last straw for me was just was just like a routine update and like everything broke. And at least, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is like different or there's some something more I could learn about to uh, resolve this but it was like there's no like button to like roll back to your previously working settings it's just like oh you got to go like dig into each of your plugin directories and like try to remember but I didn't have written down like what you know commit I was on <laughs> before so like you know th there's no easy way to like roll that back and I was just like I I don't I don't want to do this anymore <laughs> yeah that's perfectly understandable yeah and VS Code as well, I still kind of follow it and its developments. And they're doing this really interesting things with the VS Code remote plugin, uh, where you can you can connect your local instance of VS Code to a remote thing. And that could be a Docker container or any SSH connection. Or like on Windows, it could be the Windows subsystem for Linux stuff. And so with that, you, you can use... It's ama absolutely amazing. You can just connect to this remote place where you have all your code, but work on it on your local VS Code instance on your host machine. And I've used that quite a lot because at work, I, I work off a machine that I SSH into. So I was using that a lot. I have a Windows machine that I work on sometimes. And so again, I'm using the subsystem for Linux and I could just connect to that from VS Code. So I think I think they've done a lot of very 
very smart things. And so it's not uh, not surprising to me that VS Code kind of has, I don't know the stats, but it must be the most popular editor for kind of web development by quite some distance, I, I would think bet. That's a very safe assumption, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I haven't used it for um, SSH, but I actually do have a pretty unusual workflow now with VS Code, which is, um, so I'm working on this programming language and we use Nix to configure our dependencies because there's like a number of different tools you need to have installed with the correct version numbers to get the compiler to build. So uh, Nix is pretty great for that. You just say like Nix develop once you have it set up and then whatever commit you're on of the repo, it'll just be like, oh, cool. Here's all here's all the dependencies you need. We'll just like, you might have to wait for to download if you haven't downloaded them before, but then it's just like, cool, you're up and running. And it used to be that this was a little bit annoying with like VS code, because for example, I would have like one version of Rust that I was getting through Nix and when I was in that Nix shell and like, you know, building the compiler from the command line, it would have everything there and it would all be on my path and everything would be great. But of course, I would be running the editor in a completely different window. And so it wouldn't know about that version of Rust. There'd be these like subtle mismatches, which would sometimes cause problems. But it turns out there's a way to launch it from within Nix where it's pre-configured to get all of its stuff from like Nix rather than from your sort of like global environment. So basically now I do like Nix develop to like, you know, start up my shell. And then I, within that launch code. And then from there, I just have exactly the same, everything's synced with, with my local like Nix thing. And so I assume there's probably some uh, equivalent of that I could do with Vim or NeoVim if I ever end up going back to them, uh, which I don't know, maybe there will be this like cool new Lua based plugin ecosystem where everything works better than before. And someone will convince me to, to give it another shot because i mean i do miss like the vim editing experience is just like super fast like everything like it, it's even noticeably faster than like vs code and i do like that vs code it's like it's, it's not so slow that it's annoying it's it's noticeable but it's not frustrating like it was with like intellij and, and eclipse in them yeah uh, i'll i'll get you back on the neo vim bandwagon at, and, at, and i mean like and like vim is the better vim than anything else yeah, <laughs> that's for sure yeah, right like a thing that i a, a persistent frustration of mine is and i thought this was just like oh this is a vs code bug until i tried disabling the vim plugin and it went away and i was like okay well now now i know what the problem is but like there's this weird thing where like when you do a like a global search maybe even like a local search and like it jumps to the place where it's like oh here's here's it here it is i found it i'm like cool let me start typing. And then as soon as I start or like I press escape or something to like close the find box, it's like, oh, I'll jump back to where you were before. I was like, no, I was, I found, I just, what? But if you don't have the plug it installed, it doesn't do that. So anyway, there's probably some workaround for that that I need to figure out. But there's a little annoyances like that where I'm just like, every every time that happens, I'm like, if I were using Vim, this wouldn't happen. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's, so far, it's not enough to get me to, to switch back yet and, and deal with the plugin situation. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I'm, I'm kind of curious. So obviously, you're, you're working on Rock. Have you had to or are you building the things like language server implementation or syntax highlighting like how are you sort of tackling not just the core language but all the stuff that actually means that people can work in it right because i'm if you shipped rock v1 it's like oh sorry there's no syntax highlighter available that's not a great you know <laughs> people are gonna not leap on that yeah so we actually like there's a whole big part of the language which is like we we have this grand scheme to build and bundle an editor with the language like it's its own like rock specific so Basically, the goal is to do something that's not achievable with language server. And like we want to have this whole plugin ecosystem where plugins are ex like my specific goal is that it's as easy to write an editor plugin and like to extend the editor as it is to write a function. Like it's about the same amount of code and you can do it in the same file and you just like I'm writing a function. And then I'm like, oh, you know what? I want to add a little bit of editor tooling. Enter start typing editor tooling and it looks about the same as as like the function I just wrote right above it. So I want to really like make the barrier microscopic to like adding editor tooling and make it so that you can write editor extensions in the same source file as your actual code so that you can ship and I hopefully we can get this to be a cultural norm like package specific tooling with the package. So when you install a package, you just get the tooling that comes with it and my theory is that if we can make that be a cultural norm, that can be this like combinatoric explosion of like virtuous cycle benefits. And like every piece of code that you share is not just the code and the implementation, the documentation, but also tooling that makes you more productive when using that specific thing. And it's tooling that the author designed specifically for that thing. And it was really easy for them to do that because we've, we've made the barrier to that so low. 
So a lot of things in the language are actually designed around this idea. Like that's a big part of the reason that we have this goal of having everything run really fast is because the editor plugins need to be written in Rock. So Rock needs to run really fast or else you're going to have a laggy editor experience. And like it's a pure functional language, which means that if you're getting these editor plugins from other people, you don't have to worry about security stuff because they're literally not capable of doing things like, you know, writing to your hard disk or whatever. We can we can add like sandbox support for that. But anyway, that, that's a whole long thing. But yeah, so there's we're very ambitious with our goals around that, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, I like the idea, though. I, I often think that when you want to pick something up, uh, a new package, and you've got to install, you have to install the thing right itself via, in, in my case, obviously, NPM, if we're talking front end, then you have to potentially look for the VS Code extension or the extension in whatever editor you want to use. Potentially, then there might be a Chrome extension or Firefox extension to add something to help you debug it. Like, you know, Redux has the Redux extension for for the dev tools. And so before you know it, you've kind of installed three or four separate things for this one package. And then, as you say, you you update one, you don't update the other, and it just always it always feels very clunky to me. Right, they might stomp on each other and yeah. Yeah, or then you get a new laptop and you you install that, you pull down the code, but you forget to add the extension, anything like that. So I, I can get on board with the idea that I've installed this package and it can just sort of annotate or extend my extend my tools with stuff that I will find useful as a user of said package. Yeah, and actually part of the motivation for this idea was actually looking at like my my theory for how TypeScript, you know, got so popular based on my experience, you know, talking to people about it at conferences, which is just that if it everything works right out the box, like you just install Rock and you just have this editor, you didn't have to go out of your way to get it. It's just like, yeah, that's just part of the executable you downloaded or installed via homebrew or whatever. Then if if that friction is so low and it's like it actually just works it's not like oh i installed it but it doesn't work with my editor or like my version of this thing is incompatible with the plugin version like there's all these annoying things that can go wrong but if it's just like oh it's just right there and it just works then like people will probably use it and i'm, I'm aware like of course the first thing everyone mentions is like did you know that people are quite attached to their editors yes i know that i <laughs> but my my theory is that there's actually quite a, a good bit of precedent over it, it's not a common way that people do language development these days but like there's plenty of precedent across history for languages that ship with their own editor most extreme example being Smalltalk, where like you can only edit things in the Smalltalk editor but like the there's there's lots of languages where uh, r being actually probably the best like modern example of that or like data scientists like live in jupiter and they never use like vs code there's lots of examples of people doing programming in a like non-general purpose editor and like being very happy with that so i think it's up to us to like ship an experience that's so good that people will just have a revealed preference for using the rock editor instead of other editors. And I'm very optimistic that we'll be able to do that, uh, but it's going to take a while. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you implement a Vim mode, then we'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole can of worms. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah, this is this has been cool. Thanks for uh, for coming on and talking to me about all this stuff. And best of luck with you know lit HTML and, and and all the other stuff on the on the the DevTools team. Oh, thank you, thank you for having me, and uh, I'll be following Rock with with interest. So yeah, looking forward to seeing more. I I fully expect that you'll be using it at work, and Google Google Chrome's DevTools will be using Rock, right? Right? Yeah, no, just that's going to be an easy adoption. <laughs> I'll get the whole of Google on it in no time at all. Fits great with the whole philosophy of you know everything we've been talking about. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot, Jack. Great, great talking to you. Thank you.